notice anything unusual about Santa Carla yet? No. It's a pretty cool place. If you're a Martian. Or a vampire. Are you guys sniffing old newsprint or something? You think you really know what's happening around here, don't you? Well, I'll tell you something. You don't know shit, buddy. Yeah. You think we just work in a comic book store for our folks, huh? Actually, I thought it was a bakery. This is just our cover. We're dedicated to a higher purpose. We're fighters for truth, justice, and the American way. Right. Hey, man. Read this. I told you, I don't like horror comics. Think of it more as a survival manual. There's a number on the back. And pray you never need to call us. I'll pray. I never need to call you. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Dana Buckler Show. I am once again joined by my co-host, Ashley. Ashley, how are you today? I'm doing great, Dana. How are you doing? I'm doing well, thank you. So this is part two of our continuing look at the evolution of vampire films starting in the 1980s. Before we get to the subject of today's movies, I want, I guess we're going to have to occasionally throw in a few corrections and omissions. Mm. So to take a page from the uh, how did this get made folks there, uh, I received an email yesterday from a gentleman by the name of Warren Chernoff, and he said that the trope of having faith in order for a crucifix to work against a vampire was used in Stephen King's 1975 Salem's Lot. Ashley thought it had originated in Fright Night. So, Warren, I want to thank you for pointing that out. Ashley, thoughts on this? Yeah, I mean, absolutely, Warren. That's why I said, you know, please let us know. I mean, we we do a lot of research for these pods, but obviously the world of movies is so vast. And one of the best parts about being involved in the podcast is the amount of knowledge that the community brings to it. And so we really appreciate that because we're going to make mistakes and have, you know, well, actually, you know, moments. So uh, please keep those coming as, as you see fit. If we are wrong, please feel free to correct us so we can correct ourselves. I asked Warren if it would be okay if we gave him credit for this. And also, another thing I wanted to do was I wanted to mention a few of the tweets that we were getting. We got a great response from the Fright Night episode, and I was really excited about it. A long-time listener, Matty Feck, one of the longest listeners of this show, he wrote to say that the Fright Night episode reminded him of classic How Is This Movie, he really liked that. And Matty, I appreciate that. And I, I know uh, Ashley and I, we've been having a lot of fun just putting these episodes together, so to get that kind of feedback is outstanding. And a, a fantastic friend of the show, Carmelita Valdez McCoy. She tweeted to Ashley and myself that Dandridge isn't my ideal either. I do agree, Dana Buckler. He is a great version for Fright Night setting in 1985 for a smart vampire trying to hide in plain sight in the mid 80s, taking cover as, as a successful yuppie playboy is genius. Ashley? Yeah. Now, she did also agree with me that he was too tan in a later tweet. I did. So, so thank you, Carmelita, because I agree. I do agree. He was cool. You know, I went back and I, I kind of looked at some things again because it was a little hard on him. And, you know, he was 80s cool. I will give you that. You know, the white the white jacket, you know, the Miami Vice vibe he gave him parts. Like, I mean, that was cool. But she did agree with me, Dana. He was far too tan. All right. Well, I'm, I'm still sticking to my guns there. I, <laughs> I, you know, I just thought he was the man. Yeah, you know, and Dana, I, I have to say there's two people I also want to talk about. So Jarrett uh, Rumininski 
Uh, but I apologize, Jared, if I'm pronouncing your name incorrectly. Um, he's one of uh, our fantastic, you know, friends on Twitter. He's absolutely one of the most intelligent people that I follow. And he's a big fan of our show. And I'm really glad that we didn't let you down, Jared, because you're such a big fan of Fright Night. I was a little nervous about how you were going to respond to especially my not liking parts of the the film. So I'm so glad that you that you enjoyed it. And then also um, Mike from Amateur Auteurs Podcast. He gave us a great idea idea. He reached out to me this morning uh, before because he I had posted that we were recording today. And he reached out to me and said, you know, maybe we should do some dishonorable mentions because there's so many great vampire films that I think sometimes we forget about like the really bad ones that are actually kind of fun. And so I thought that was a great idea, Mike. Mike has already tweeted to me a gif of one of those films that hopefully we will include on a list. I don't want to ruin it in case we do like a whole a whole compilation of this. So please, Please tweet us out your names or your gifs of those vampire movies that are dishonorable mentions when we talk about the canon of the vampire, because we've gotten some great ones that are great, but I think the bad ones need to be recognized too. Just for the listeners, which one did he cite? specifically in this tweet? So the one that he mentioned is he included a gif of the the great classic Nicolas Cage um, with Vampire's Kiss. So that is definitely a dishonorable mention. And there are many that I have, and I'm curious to see what the, the greater Twitterverse has to say about those vampire movies that we will not be doing deep dives on, but that they're worth at least recognizing and mentioning. It was pointed out to me by a, a, a good friend of mine, Andrea. I was speaking to her in person over the weekend, and I mentioned that we had started this uh, vampire retrospective. And I said that, you know, we'd start it with Fright Night. And I said, that's one of the best 1980s vampire films. And she pointed out to me that her favorite vampire film from the 1980s was the Jim Carrey movie, Once Bitten, which is not going to get a deep dive on this look. But I, I'm going to just give her a little tip of the hat and say, you know what? I remember watching that movie multiple times as a kid. And uh, if I remember correctly, it's been a while. Lauren Hutton is in the film and she sort of plays the uh, the antagonist in it. And uh, so I just want to give a little shout out to Andrea for reminding me that that was one of Jim Carrey's first films before anybody really knew who he was. Yeah, I'd forgotten about that movie. Actually, I'd forgotten about it. That can go on our dishonorable list. So <laughs> for some, for some, now, now, for some. I, for some. Well, dishonorable doesn't have to mean bad, right? Like dishonorable doesn't have to mean that it's a bad movie. It's just not the type of vampire movie maybe that we're talking about in these deep dives. That's like a classic, great film that contributed to the canon of vampire cinema. It doesn't mean they're bad. Maybe they're just fun. You know, maybe right. they're just these fun moments. And, and once a bit it is, that's just a fun, silly movie. Um, so dishonorable does not necessarily have to mean that it's, you know, a, a shit movie. Sure, sure. Talk about today's movie. We need to talk about a screenwriter by the name of Jan Fisher. Back in 1985, Jan Fisher was having a discussion with a friend of hers. And, and to understand Jan Fisher, by this point, she had written a little bit of uh, television. For example, she was one of the writers on The Golden Girls, but she hadn't really broken out yet. And she was having a discussion with uh, with a friend of hers. And they were discussing, of all things, Peter Pan. And the discussion came up about why Peter and specifically the Lost Boys never age and why they only come out at night and why Peter can fly. And it was during this discussion that it occurred to them that the reason why Peter Pan and the Lost Boys never age is because, well... They have to be vampires. And the idea immediately struck Jan, and she she began writing this screenplay that told the story of a group of sixth graders who discovered that an older group of kids were actually vampires. They seek help from a couple of Boy Scouts known as the Frog Brothers, who are also vampires. Now, the script that she was writing was really, it was a whimsical tale that would have barely registered a PG rating. By the time she'd finished the script in 1986, one of the biggest movies the previous year was Richard Donner's direct. It. I'm saying that in air quotes, and the Steven Spielberg produced hit film, The Goonies, which listeners of the show will know that was one of Ashley's recommendations on volume eight of the 20th Century Movie Club. Well, that was a really, really big movie. Once the script was finished, an all-out bidding war started with Warner Brothers snatching up the script, and they immediately got to work trying to get the project into development with the idea that this film would essentially be the Goonies versus the Vampires. Now, Warner Brothers even tried to get Richard Donner on board as a director, but due to the fact that he had just signed on to direct Lethal Weapon, he wasn't able to do it. But since he had the right experience working with kids in his previous films, he agreed to come on as the executive producer for the project. Now, interestingly, though, even though this script was billed as a story about much younger kids, one of the first changes that Donner made to the story was to make the kids 
teenagers. This happened after a script rewrite by Jeffrey Baum. It was this rewrite of the script that got the attention of St. Elmo's fire director, Joel Schumacher. And after agreeing to come on board as the film's director, he made even more changes to the story. Gone was the lighthearted G-rated children's tale. Now the story was a far more dark and terrifying tale, with a real focus on the typical teenage angst one experienced in the 1980s. And make no mistake about it, this was now absolutely an R-rated film. Now one of the things I found really interesting was that because of all the changes that had happened to the script and how the story had so shifted away from Jan Fisher's original screenplay, she requested that her name be taken off the project. Warner Brothers greenlit the project with an $8.5 million budget. It bears repeating, and this is something that I continuously hammer home, that this was the 1980s, a time and place when computer-generated special effects were barely even thought of. I say this because one of the most important decisions that would have to be made for the production of The Lost Boys was the location. These days, it would be no big deal, just set up some massive green screens and you'd be off and running. But you see, Joel Schumacher fell in love with the California city of Santa Cruz, specifically its famous boardwalk. The city leaders of Santa Cruz were hesitant to grant permission to film there and only agreed after reading the script and insisting that the production change the name to the fictitious town of Santa Carla. Now, an interesting fact about Santa Cruz in the 1970s, the city was plagued with numerous murders. And in the movie, you can see the back of a billboard welcoming people to the city of Santa Carla say that it's the murder capital of the world. Now, casting for The Lost Boys was the second crucial element of the film. The cast included established actors such as Diane Wiest and Ed Harriman, and a veritable list of fresh faces that would go on to become household names, including Jason Patrick, Keith Sutherland, which I believe Ashley is going to have a little more to say, Alex Winter, and Jamie Gertz. However, The Lost Boys may be most notable for introducing a duo that would become, for the lack of a better term, infamous, known as The Two Corys. And Ashley, I want to turn it over to you just for a moment. So the two Corys obviously refer to Corey Feldman and Corey Haim. And by the time the Lost Boys had come on the scene, both Feldman and Haim had had a bit of a movie career. Arguably, Feldman was a little bit more well-known than Haim was because Feldman had already been in Gremlins, The Goonies, and Stand By Me. But Haim had also been in Lucas and Silver Bullet before the two of them were paired in The Lost Boys in 1987. They would go on after the success of The Lost Boys to star in Dream a Little Dream and License to Drive along with their respective sequels, and they kind of became a a household name together. They had an innate chemistry. They had an innate friendship that developed, not just in real life, but also that was very natural on screen. And a lot of people became obsessed with their friendship both on screen and off. Unfortunately, the 1990s would bring fewer roles to both Corey Feldman and Corey Haim. And it also would bring a tremendous issue with drug addiction for both of the Corys. They did have a reality show that came out in the early 2000s that tracked kind of a an attempt to return to relevance for both of them, uh, as well as their own struggles and continuing issues with drug addiction. They had a falling out as a result of the show, and also because Feldman refused to allow Haim around his wife and child, saying both that he didn't want Haim, who was still in active addiction, around his family, and that he personally couldn't watch Haim self-destruct any longer. And so they had a very public falling out. Now, unfortunately, Haim would die in 2010. And a lot of people, including myself, believe to this day that that Haim died of a drug overdose because of the many challenges that, that he faced throughout his lifetime and how he struggled with drugs all throughout from early child, early teenagehood through his adult years. But he didn't actually die of drug addiction. He actually wound up dying of complications due to pneumonia. And he and Feldman apparently had reconciled off the air before his death in 2010. Feldman actually went on Larry King on the day of Haim's death, and he's quoted as saying, Corey was his own enemy. I mean, look, a lot of people that are artists tend to be their own worst enemy because we're passionate people. Most recently, he's been honestly in the best frame of mind that he's ever been in in the past year. And Feldman would go on to describe that unfortunately, Haim had died not only very destitute, but incredibly alone. And so it was a very sad end for the 
you know, for for a really young kid in the 1987 Lost Boys. And Feldman's still around. Feldman most recently has gained a lot of notoriety for publishing a book where he talked about the sexual abuse that both he and Corey Haim experienced in Hollywood in the late 80s, immediately following, actually, the the release of The Lost Boys. So he's still there and, and he's still working in some ways. But the two of them, this was the beginning of their heyday that wouldn't last for very long, Dana, but certainly the legacy that they left behind, even before they became, as you described, incredibly infamous. You know, the legacy, I mean, you can't think about 1980s without thinking about the two Corys. And it started with this movie. Absolutely. And we're going to talk a little bit more about their characters individually a little later on in the episode. The Lost Boys was released on July 30th, 1987, and it opened at number two that weekend and would grow on to gross a little over $32 million at the box office. And again, I, I have to stress that you know, thirty-two million. You know, the, I think uh, the Fright Night grossed somewhere in that neighborhood. Like these were very solid box office returns back then. I mean, that these days a movie is not considered a success unless it grossed a billion dollars. But put that in perspective, those billion-dollar films cost three hundred million to make, add on another two hundred million to market. Uh, when you look at the the percentages here, when you look at a movie that cost nine million, it made more than two times, th- almost three times its budget. I mean, it's. 32 million is a very respectable number. Now, critical reviews were were fairly positive with the film. It holds a 74% on Rotten Tomatoes, and, and, and much like Fright Night, The Lost Boys was, again, instrumental in the resurgence of vampire films. And, and so, actually, you could talk just a little bit about the importance of The Lost Boys. So The Lost Boys was a different type of vampire film, I would argue, um, that had ever come out before because it was focusing on these incredibly youthful characters who look like teenagers, they look like the teenagers of the day, and they weren't, quote unquote, just rebels in the way that most parents fear, you know, bad kids. They actually were the, you know, the walking dead that were truly not just corrupting their kids, but corrupting their entire souls if they turned them or eating them. So they were they were bad guys. But more importantly, this film is credited for not just that more youthful approach to vampires, but the beauty that's associated with them. Because these guys are good looking. I mean, they, you know, their hair is kind of silly today. I mean, their dress in some ways for some people is not how people would dress in 2019, although I think it's fucking awesome. But that being said, they they were these beautiful creatures that were also monsters. And the import of that influence many vampire films to come, most importantly, Joss Whedon. So for those of you who are not total Buffy freaks like I am, Joss Whedon is the creator of of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And he was highly influenced by the Lost Boys because it gave him the inspiration for that concept that vampires were beautiful and these demonic beings. So if you look at the way that the vampires are portrayed in the Lost Boys, they go from looking like regular people to when they're in quote unquote quote, vampire mode, they look, you know, scary. They they have a different, they have different features to their face. They don't always have their vampire teeth out. You know, they become the monsters in that moment. And Buffy very much emulates that. Uh, when Angel turns for the first time and David Boreanaz goes from being, you know, beautiful David Boreanaz to being scary, wrinkly head David Boreanaz, that is a direct homage to what happens in The Lost Boys. As far as the vampire lore, there's not a whole lot that's different in it compared to other traditional vampire movies. You know, they have to be sired. They can be staked and killed. They don't like holy water. They don't like garlic. This does, it doesn't introduce the idea of kind of this one vampire master, but it's in the 80s. It talks about kind of this, what vampire packs are, how you have these hives of vampires and that you have this one master that kind of controls uh, all of the sires that it is sired, which again is directly repeated in season one of, of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. The master is very much an homage to what's happening in the Lost Boys plot. But more than anything, these vampires are just young and they're they're cool. You know, they're super cool. And that's different than some other vampire movies that have come out. I guess it's similar to Fright Night if you found him to be cool. Um, you know, it's similar in that way, but they're young. And that's that's the difference. It's this eternal, um, everlasting youth. Tell me about the first time you saw The Lost Boys. So I don't remember how old I was when I saw The Lost Boys for the first time, but I was either in my late preteens or early teens the first time I saw it. And I loved it from the moment that I, I watched that movie. I thought that the the entire concept of David and his fellow vampires, I just thought they were 
awesome. I wanted to be one of them. And I thought the atmosphere in the movie was so cool. And the soundtrack, and I know we're going to talk a little bit about it, but the soundtrack, I mean, just opening up from the beginning with Cry Little Sister, which is one of my favorite songs, you know, I mean, the whole thing just grabbed me at that age, that that young teenage age, which I think a lot of people saw it at. And I rewatched this a few weeks ago when we were preparing. And, and even today, I still love The Lost Boys. I think it's an amazing movie. And we'll get into a little bit about what the best and the worst parts are of it. But from the very first time I saw this film, I absolutely loved it. What about you? This is an interesting one because I am going to think I've told this on the podcast before, but when I was growing up in in Halifax, Nova Scotia, uh, my parents were super strict on what we watched. And you know, I was I lived in what would be known as the PG family, meaning that, you know, if we want to rent a movie, especially in the mid to late 1980s, it had to be a PG rated film. Now, that being said, there was a house across the street from where I lived and there was a younger couple and I for the life of me and I can't believe I forget their names. But that when I say younger, like I'd say my parents must have been in their 30s and these people were first time home homeowners living in their 20s. And this was and, you know, they were friendly and neighborly. And, and I would go over there every once in a while because this is the 80s and it was cool to just visit your neighbors. So I got talking to the the gentleman that lived across the street and you know the subject of movies came up even as i think this was 1988 so this is a year after the film came out and he had hbo which we did not have and he had all these movies taped on hbo he had all these vhs blank vhs's that just had a little a uh, little strip on them where he had handwritten what the movies were he was kind enough to let me start borrowing some of these movies and the first movie that i ever borrowed from him it just said the lost boys on it and I, I, for the life of me, I can't remember, but I'm pretty sure my parents, we kept our parents, my brother and I kept our parents intentionally in the dark about this underground video store that we had gained access to. So that was actually the first time I ever saw The Lost Boys was on, uh, you know, taped off of HBO. So it was the complete unedited film. But what I remember more than the two Corys, more than the soundtrack more than everything else in the movie, what I remember the most was Kiefer Sutherland and how much that character scared the shit out of me. It actually ruined Kiefer Sutherland for me for years to come. Now, it didn't help that he would play the bad guy in quite a few movies post The Lost Boys. And it didn't help that just the year before I had seen Stand By Me, where Kiefer Sutherland, again, plays the bad guy. But The Lost Boys ruined him for me for years, even to the point where just two weeks ago, I'm just going through YouTube, doing some research on The Lost Boys, and I came across Kiefer Sutherland's YouTube channel. And yes, he does have a YouTube channel in which he cooks. And this particular one was him, how to cook a proper steak. And I'm watching it and I'm just watching him going, you son of a bitch. You know, like he's still fucking like I, he, this movie, the, I love the Lost Boys, but this movie ruined Keith or Sutherland for me. So I think that's probably a good way for us to segue into how we feel about individual characters in the film. And Ashley, I'll start with you. And I guess we'll start with Keith or Sutherland's character of David Powers. So this is the one time I wish that we were on video because I would love to show the listeners my notes that I literally, my first bullet just says Kiefer with like 15 exclamation points because that was the first thing I wrote down about this movie. So I, I you know, and I think it, a lot of it is the age I was because, you know, you have your, you know, your prepubescent or already pubescent girl. I mean, nothing is more beautiful than Kiefer Sutherland with that one cross earring and that black leather jacket in this movie. And I was not afraid of him at all. I wanted nothing as, as frightened as I was, because I shared in Fright Night about how terrified I was by the concept of vampires when I saw that, because I was so little when I saw that movie. I had such a completely different reaction to this that instead of being afraid, I did not understand at all why Michael wanted to kill them because <laughs> I was like, absolutely, let's go. I will live in your cave. I will drink the blood with you. I have no problem with it. And I just think he's beautiful. One of the only reasons I watched 24, which is not a show I enjoyed, was because Kiefer Sutherland was in it because I have loved him since The Lost Boys. Um, I think David is a really interesting character. 
because I think he's got an interesting arc throughout the movie because he's not just a faceless monster. You know, I think the great twist in this film, when you find out about the masterpiece, you know, that there's someone beyond the vampires we're seeing on screen kind of controlling and pulling the strings that they're responsible to, you begin to see that, you know, Kiefer Sutherland's character of David and the other vampires alongside him, that they're their pawns. They were young kids that were, you know, preyed upon and taken advantage of. And I think that's what's interesting about the portrayal of the vampires in this and why I think it's it's really affecting to to have someone their quote unquote own age. Because we don't really know how long David's been a vampire. You know, it's not very clear if he's been a vampire for years, so he's like a hundred, or if he was turned, you know, two or three years ago. We don't we don't know. It's kind of implied that he's still very close in age to Michael because of the stupid thing that they do. He still acts like a teenage boy. I mean, they're hanging off the railroad tracks and they're pretending that the Chinese food is worms. And, you know, they're just kind of acting like dumb teenage boys. And and I think that's an interesting twist to to David's character. And I guess that's why I've always viewed him, not just because I'm highly attracted to him, but also because I think that I have a lot of sympathy for his character because of the, the smart way that it was portrayed in, in the film. Does that make sense? Absolutely. But again, at the same time, you know, he still scares me. So <laughs> I'm going to start sending you pictures of Kiefer at like 11 o'clock at night, Dana. I mean, it's crazy. It's crazy how, <laughs> how just two performances, one in the Lost Boy, uh, one in Stand By Me and, and one in the Lost Boys just, I mean, talk about someone being typecast for me, even though, you know, a lot of times he plays against that type. It's crazy. Let's talk about Jason Patrick's character for a moment. Michael Emerson. Michael, for me, I, I, help me to understand something here, because is Michael supposed to be... 17 years old, 18 years old, because he looks a little bit older. And I was just kind of thinking, you know, at this point, is this somebody that should have moved on from the nest a little bit? Because the story opens up with um, Diane Weist plays the mother of Michael and Sam, Lucy. And it's pretty much understood that she's gotten divorced. She's broke. She's moving in with her father and Sam and Michael are coming with them. Now, Sam is the typical teenage boy. And Michael, I guess just rewatching the film again, it doesn't, I, if I've missed it if it, it alludes to how old he was, because I, I got the impression that he was maybe a little too old to still be living at home, or is he supposed to be 17? Help me with this, Ashley. I'm very confused. You know, I have always viewed him as like 17 years old. And and what I've what I've kind of put it off to is the I, I think I've shared this before. In in 80s movies, teenagers always look like they were 35. Like <laughs> they always looked really old. Um I I don't think that the I don't think that the 80s movies did a good job of portraying teens as they actually were because they just cast actors that were way too old other than the two Corys. I mean, the two Corys look of age in this film because they were. Jason Patrick was 20 years old when he was cast. So I guess he wasn't that far removed from the proper age group. But I have always picked him, pictured him as being, you know, maybe going into his senior year while he's there, you know, in, in the new town. I think that that's what we're supposed to assume, but I, I do agree. He looks he looks very old, and and so does I mean so does Kiefer Sutherland. So so do all of the characters. I mean so does Star. You know I mean they all look a lot older than they're supposed to be. But I think that's a I mean Molly Ringwald. I don't think looked her age, even though she was closer in age. She just looked old because maybe eighties dress makes you look old. Did you feel like the character of Michael wasn't flushed out enough before he becomes a vampire? I've always thought he was a douche. Like, oh. I'll, I'll be very honest. I've oh. always thought Michael is a total narcissistic asshole. And, and I think part of it is because I just sympathized more with the actual vampires than I did him. And, and also, not just with him, but, you know, Corey Haims' character, I think, is is so fantastic in this movie. And his character, I think, is a lot more interesting than, than you know, Jason Patrick's character of Michael. But I, I think that Michael... He's just that cool dude. You know, he's that cool guy who dresses really cool and he's apathetic and you know doesn't really, you know, doesn't really care about things and you're supposed to I think care about him because he's beautiful, not necessarily care about him because we really know anything about him and I think that's why and we'll get into this later I think that's why David wants him because he's beautiful well talking about Corey Haim and and this is pure gold Corey Haim performance right here I mean he's affable he's charming he's funny he's somebody that at least in this movie I wanted to spend the most time with if you were to ask the question who's the main character of the Lost Boys what would your answer be 
know. Maybe Sam, you know, maybe Corey Haim's character yeah. of Sam, because I, I think he's definitely the one that narratively is that we spend the most time getting to know. And we see so much of it through his eyes because he's seen what's happening to his brother, you know, the change, quote unquote, that's happening to his brother. I do think he gets the funniest lines in the movie. I think he gets the funniest scenes in the movie. And he's the most relatable because he's geeky. And I mean, imagine that. Imagine being like a total geeky kid who has this super hot, you know, popular older brother who's hanging out with these beautiful people. So I I, I think most people related with that more than they can relate with the Kiefer Sutherlands and the Jason Patricks. Okay. And I love when Sam is introduced to Edgar and Alan Frog. I want to talk about the Frog Brothers in a moment, but uh, you know, Corey Feldman was he was in the Goonies and Richard Donner, since Richard Donner was executive producer on this film, he was able to get Corey Feldman to audition and he got the part. And apparently the first couple auditions that, or the first couple rehearsals that Corey Feldman did, uh, Joel Schumacher didn't like his performance. And he said that he, he told Corey Feldman to go to the video store and rent every Sylvester Stallone and every Chuck Norris movie he could find and then blend those two characters together. And that is the performance we got of Edgar Frog. What I found interesting about the Frog Brothers was, you know, they, they run this, I don't know if they own the comic book store or if they just work there or they're the managers, but they immediately tell Sam what's going on. Like they've got the 411 and they say that they're, you know, they're, tr they're, <laughs> they're, they're, they're fighters for truth, justice in the American way. And again, this, you got to remember, this is all like comic book fans today or comic book fans today are going to be like, oh yeah, well, we know all this and all this stuff. But in the 1980s, comic books were, they were really relegated to sort of, that was, I don't know, would you call it Don't a, hate on the comic I, book I, readers not, in the 1980s, I, I'm Dana. not, I'm not, but it's not, but would you say, would you agree that it was more of a subculture than anything that was truly in the pop culture. Sure. Well, I mean, I think that's a big thing today is that being a nerd is cool now. That's like a big thing. Like Anthony Michael Hall's character in The Breakfast Club would not exist today because his character would be one of the most popular people because it's cool to be a geek. That, that's a big thing now. Geek culture with the hipster movement, which I am not into at all, but with the hipster movement that brought in this kind of okayness with being a geek and obsessing about comics or about sci-fi or about Game of Thrones, which comes back Sunday. Um, you know, anything like that is, is not just of pop culture, but it's it's the norm now. Geekism is norm. And that was not the case in the 1980s. And that's why the comic book, when you talk about it being a subculture, I mean, geek culture was a subculture all its own because we still had the Anthony Michael Hall representation of the nerd and a very, you know, specific strata, you know, uh, between what's popular and what isn't popular. And I think that they very much represented that subculture and it existed. I mean, everyone in my family, they were more of that subculture than they were of any other, uh, you know, that they weren't the Molly Ringwald and the Breakfast Club. They were more Ali Sheedy. Well, I was more Ali Sheedy, but my family maybe was more Anthony Michael Hall. So I, I think that you're you're spot on with that. When Sam meets the Frog Brothers in the comic book store, it's alluded to that Sam's an expert on comics. He starts talking about how they've got the comics rearranged, they've got them arranged all incorrectly. The Frog Brothers try to present him with a, a comic book that says vampires are everywhere. And they start basically telling Sam, hey, listen, you're in the vampire capital of the world. And, and Sam thinks they're full of shit because this happens early enough on that before anything really of significance happens in the film. But I was watching this the other day and it struck me that it becomes evident. And and by the way, spoilers for anyone that hasn't seen The Lost Boys. We're hoping, you know, 32 years after the films come out that if you're listening to this, you've certainly seen the movie. They present themselves as these vampire hunters, but it becomes abundantly clear later on in the film that they've actually never killed a vampire until the time comes for them to finally do it. And I just got a kind of got a kick out of how tough they were. But when the time came, they were, you know, they did it. That, to give them to give them credit, they 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 definitely killed a vampire in the in inside the lair there. But what do you think about the Frog Brothers. I think the Frog Brothers are great. I think they're so funny. I mean, the reason I'm laughing right now is because, you know, in the 20th Century Movie Club episode, we just recorded, we were talking about zombies. And so I mentioned that I have like a whole zombie plan. I've got a zombie kit. And so I'm kind of like the Frog Brothers in that way, you know, that I, I'm totally there. I'm going to slaughter these guys and survive. But then you actually get into the situation. And that's what I love is they scream the whole time because they're terrified. You know, they're so hard before they go in there. And then they're just like, what the fuck? 
you know, and they didn't realize it was going to be so gory and it was going to be so gross. And and I I love that about that entire exchange in the in the vampire layer. But I think the Frog Brothers are great. They provide a really interesting you know comic relief to what could have been a super angsty film, they provide a little bit of a balance to that, which is why I I don't think this is a horror movie. I don't think that's the proper genre for The Lost Boys. And I think more it's this weird, dark comedy slash horror film because of the fact that you have the Frog Brothers. And I think the chemistry is so natural and apparent from the get-go between Corey Haim and Corey Feldman because the scenes that they're in are just electric because they play off of one another so beautifully and so well. And they're so funny together. They really are. And Haim does the... I mean, he chews every scene he's in. He is so good. I don't know if Corey Haim was ever better, honestly, than in this movie. I think Corey Feldman has been better. But I don't know if Corey Haim has ever been better in this movie. And I think both of them made one another better in this film with the way they interacted. Diane Weist, who I just think is a fantastic actress, and spoiler alert for the 20th Century Movie Club, Parenthood is absolutely on my list of films to talk about down the road. And I think she's terrific in Parenthood. She she's not doesn't have a huge role in this film, but it is, it is a, a, an essential role in the movie. Early on in the film, she sees a help wanted sign in a video store, which is right on the boardwalk which I thought was a really interesting place to put a video store. But that's, you know, that's a completely other discussion. She went to the boardwalk. She goes to the video store. She sees a help wanted sign. She goes in there and she says she's looking for a job. She meets Max, who, you know, spoiler alert, turns out to be the head vampire. And we learn that a little later on. But I thought it would be fun to look up exactly how much minimum wage would have been in 1987 for this job. And uh, she gets the job and I'm assuming she was paid minimum wage because I don't know a video store that ever paid more than minimum wage. So she was making $3.35 an hour. Random fact that will serve nobody in the future. But I wanted to just go ahead and throw that out there. (laughs) She ends up dating Max and there's an interesting scene that when we're talking about the mythology of vampires where Max comes over to their house and he says are you going to let me in again that's playing with the vampire lore so talk a little bit about diane weist and then a little bit about ed harriman's character max as the head vampire. So I love Diane Weist. I, I do love her in Parenthood, but she's my favorite part of Footloose. I think she's so good in Footloose. So good. And I love her in this. I think what's so sad is I think her character is really the tragic character in the movie because here she is, this recently divorced woman. And divorce was not popular still in the 1980s. It wasn't as mainstream as it is today. There was this unfortunate stigma still on some women that had been divorced and they had to get up and move across country because they couldn't stay in their hometowns. And I I, I thought it was an interesting way to start off the film that you've got this family who's just been through this horrible you know trauma of divorce. And here she is and she wants to start over her life. And I love that she was going to work at a video store because it's something, you know, hip and cool for her to do. And she meets Max and he turns out to be, you know, an asshole that wants her to be the mom to all of his vampire children. You know, I mean, it sucks. She's got a really terrible storyline in this, but she does great with it. I think that she's wonderful. I think she's one of the most charming actresses. I really do. I just absolutely adore her. And as far as Max, I think he's great. And one of the reasons I love him is because he does not look like Chris Sarandon. He does not look like Kiefer Sutherland. He does not, he's not a beautiful man. He's not an overtly physically attractive man. He's not cool. He's super geeky. You know, there's not and a lot of that he's putting on, I'm sure, but he's smart enough to put that on. And I like that about him. And that's sort of where the comedy comes from is it's like, really, this guy is the vampire overlord. This is what he looks like. And I thought that was a fun part. And the dinner scene is such a classic part of the Lost Boys where they, you know, try to feed him the garlic and they try to make him drink the holy water. I mean, all of that is comedy gold. And it's a fun It's a fun way of uncovering that the masters, that it takes a lot more to kill them um, because they're older, because they're stronger. And I I really liked that uh, about those scenes. Uh, You know, a conversation about the Lost Boys can't be complete without talking about Bernard Hughes, who's grandpa in the film. And he's sort of, I I took his character as somebody who's lived in Santa Carla. we're calling it Santa Carla. He lived in Santa Carla his whole life. Well, I don't know if it's his whole life because I don't know if it is it alluded to that, that this is where uh, Lucy grew up. 
I think that's what I've always assumed. They don't say that, but I've always assumed that she's returning home. She's returning but home. But she's going back home. She's clearly clueless about the epidemic that's happening in Santa Carla. Because another thing that we didn't mention is that the, sort of the opening shots of the film, when the the cover of People Are Stranger playing, there are missing signs all over the place. It's it's evident that there's an epidemic happening in this town. Grandpa just is the type of guy who I think is just keeps his head down. He's very much aware of what's really going on, and I think he sort of has this I won't bother you if you don't bother me mentality, a little nod to the Chris Sarandon. See, I disagree with you. Okay. I think he's killed lots of fucking vampires. Okay. I think I don't think that this is anything new because you know, he's a hunter, right? He's got those really creepy taxidermy yeah. you know, things all around this house. That ro- that terrifying room full of antlers. What kind of room is that? <laughs> you know, but he's got that room. I, I, you know, when he comes in and he spoiler alert, you know, runs him over with his car, and he has that great line about vampires. I think that he's. I don't think that this is his first rodeo. I think that he has encountered these. Guys, before and he does not. I don't think he messes with them. I don't think he seeks them out yeah. the way that the Frog Brothers want. But I, I just can't believe this is the as much of a hunter as he is. I cannot believe that this is the first one. And what a great twist that you've got the Frog Brothers, you've got Sam's character who are prepped. They've got their comic books, they've got their lists, they've got their toolkit. They, you know, they quote unquote know how to kill these guys. And then you got the old dude who just runs him over with the car because he knows that. You know, he knows how to actually kill them. I thought that was fun. To clarify what I meant there was that I'll agree that probably in his past, he's had a lot of inter- interactions. But I think now, at least at that point, it's almost like a truce has been called. Like, I'll stop going after you. You guys stop coming after me. And this is why it would be okay and comfortable for him to tell his daughter to to go ahead and move in and bring the two children. At least that's how I took it. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until it, he was forced to basically maybe come out of vampire hunting retirement that he had to, you know, spring in and, and do what he was so good at in the past. But it's a theory of mine. But I think that's kind of that's how I look cool. at it. cool. Yeah. No, I think that's cool, Dana. He's kind of like the retired Van Helsing of the movie, sure, right? Yeah, like, yeah. I, I think I think that's cool. And so, of course, they can come back because they'll keep them safe. You know, he'll keep them safe. They're yeah. they're completely safe there. Like, I, I think that's really interesting. And and I and I agree with you. Maybe now, now that he's older, right? But maybe that's why Lucy didn't know about it. Because if Lucy grew up there and he was a young guy, you know, with this young girl as his daughter, because it's kind of implied she's it's kind of implied she's an only child, right? Like they don't ever talk about siblings. Yeah. So maybe he protected her and killed. A bunch of them back then. And maybe there was a different master back then. I mean, who knows? And I, I think that's really interesting. You know, they there's a television series in the works for the Lost Boys, at which I'm I'm interested, I'm intrigued by. I don't know if I love it, but I'm intrigued by it because it's not a direct remake. It's supposed to explore not David and his group, but just more of the the vampires in, in this town. And so I'm intrigued, but I think that'd be something interesting to to, to look into because I, I agree with you that there has to be people. This isn't a Stephen King situation. You know, Stephen King's got that great thing in his mythology that the adults know, but they refuse to recognize. They know something's wrong, but they don't do anything about it. And that's one of the more disturbing pieces of the book, It, for example, that, you know, that none of the adults in Derry, Maine can see Pennywise for who he is, but they know there's evil there and they do nothing to save their children. That's one of the most disturbing parts of his of his stories. And uh, that is, I don't think that's the case here. I don't think it's that he didn't know. I think he took a very active role at some point and then now maybe they're safe because they're with him. Absolutely. Quote unquote safe. And, and you know, we live in a world where they just want to make sequels and remakes and reboots. And I think we came up with a great idea for a prequel. So, if somebody wants to send us a, a development deal, we'll uh, begin the treatment. <laughs> we'll we'll see what we can do. We'll see if we can't piece this together. I, I didn't mention Jamie Gertz as Star because Star's a vampire, correct? So she's not. She's, she's not. not a vampire yet. She's like Michael. She hasn't. She hasn't turned she, yet. She hasn't drank the blood. Exactly. She is pre. She's pre vampire. She's simmering on vampire. She's not fully vampire yet. And she's not in a relationship. She doesn't seem to be in any type of physical relationship with any of the vampires. And, you know, it, Michael and her begin a, a, a romance. But I just, I, I kind of thought that was a little bit odd and a little bit strange. I kind of did a little more looking into it. And I realized that there was sort of an 
a theory going around about this film, sort of a, a, a sort of subtext about the film. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about that. Sure. So there is a belief, a whole, a whole group of people who believe that this film is an allegory for Michael's battle with being homosexual, with Michael's battle with the fact that he is gay. And there's a lot of things here. I mean, I'll just kind of go through a little bit of a a little bit of a list here. So, I mean, first of all, there's your obvious. I mean, already with vampires, vamp- this is a typical vampire movie in the sense that the va- there's a sexual aspect to the vampires. There's an attractive piece to it that they're either attracted to the vampires or the vampires are attracted to who they want to become a part of them. And so, you know, think about it. They drink Michael's fluids. Michael becomes infatuated with David. David becomes very infatuated with Michael. Their push and pull is not necessarily that David desperately needs anyone else to join their their pack or their nest. He specifically wants it to be Michael. And Michael very much wants David in a lot of ways. That's why he keeps returning. There's that scene where he totally ignores Star, where he goes into their lair for the first time. And he goes to be with David. He doesn't go to be with Star. And so there's this attraction there. Um, There's also the fact that they're all dressed in leather, which a lot of people have written about as a direct homage to the underground gay clubs of the 1980s, the amount of leather and leather daddies that were all a part of that, that time period. You know, David is killed by Michael with a highly phallic instrument. So there's all of this symbolism there. And so there's an argument that the whole movie is kind of an allegory for Michael struggling with the fact that he's gay and eventually rejecting the fact that he's gay. So when Sam is afraid, quote unquote, that his brother is going to become a vampire, it's that he's afraid that his brother is going to be gay. And so it's, it, and if you think about it in that way, it's a really tragic story. I mean, it's it's very violent when it comes to the gay community, if that is the purpose of the film, because they kill all of the gay people and they, you know, Michael tries to be this heterosexual, heteronormative dude at the end. And and that's unfortunate, I think. But, you know, I don't know if I totally buy it, but I know that you and I were talking a little bit earlier about this through text and you brought up something about Joel Schumacher. Do you want to maybe share that? Because I actually hadn't considered that. Well, I, you know, and, and I just, again, I want to be clear here that this is, this is not an established Mm-hmm. theory this is this is uh, this is not something that's super established this is just something that really is floating around like to use a, an example of something that is a hundred percent verified and a hundred percent established you look at the very gay subtext that is laced throughout a nightmare on elm street part two where if you watch the fantastic docu- documentary never sleep again the writer of nightmare on elm street uh david chastain was his name the writer writer of part two he just comes out and says yep i a hundred percent wrote that as a hundred it was all that was all real that was all that all that gay subtext was a hundred percent in there and if you guys didn't pick up on it i'm sorry but that was all intentional so whereas with the lost boys you know you look at the people that wrote it and i don't think this was intentional i think in a lot of cases people are are, are sort of maybe grasping at straws here to come up with this theory because uh, joel schumacher's gay and, you know, he would have, I, I don't think he, even in the 80s when, I don't I don't think he would have purposely tried to present that type of subtext. It's just a personal opinion. I don't know the man. I can't speak for him, but it's my thought. Uh, I have to disagree with the theory. What about you? I, I don't know. I, I don't know if it's a total shot in the dark. I, I did a lot of reading prior to, you know, just prior to, to us recording, because I knew that we were going to talk about this. And there is a wonderful well-written editorial about how, I mean, the title, I've got it right here. The title of it is 30 Years Ago, The Lost Boys Introduced Me to Queer Cinema. And the whole thing is this individual who is a gay individual that writes about how, for him, the you know, that that there is an innate, that what they talk about is a very commonly held assumption, which is that vampires are very much related to queer culture because there's an otherness that the vampires represent. Uh, there's a fear associated with becoming a vampire. There's the demonic piece that's associated with becoming a vampire that in the 1980s, at the height of the AIDS crisis, there, in my opinion, there it was, re- you know, there was one of the most dangerous times to be gay was in the 1980s with the violence that was being 
being directed toward the gay community. And I think that that is an interesting take because vampires are related. And we'll talk about when we get to interview with the vampire, the disappointment that I have always had that they didn't portray the true relationship between Lestat and Louis or Louis and Armand. Like you know, there, there was those underlying homosexual tones that were very intentional. And I think that this movie has that. And I think it's an unfortunate, if you view it in that way, if you choose to see this movie through that lens, I think it's a really tragic film. And I think David very much is the real victim of the Lost Boys, if that lens is applied to it, because David is just a guy who believes in who he is and appreciates who he is and owns who he is. And he wants Michael to be a part of that, knows Michael is that too. And Michael kills him for it. Right. And so David is the victim. So I I don't know necessarily if that's what they were going for. I think vampires will always be linked to the gay culture because of that otherness. And I think that's a really beautiful thing that the gay culture and queer culture has is their ownership over aspects of the vampire realm. Um, But do I think it's necessarily the lens we're supposed to see it? No, I'm not totally convinced, but I do think it's an interesting reading of it. And again, totally changes for me the intent of the film and the victimology in the film. Okay. Well, I'd be curious to hear what other people think about that. Tweet us, let us please. Let us, let us know your thoughts on that. Because, you know, after reading all of that, you know, I, I certainly do approach the movie a little bit differently now. But I just want to mention that this is still... Of of all the films that we've got slated to cover, I can still tell the listeners and tell you that this is still my favorite of the of the vampire films. Like this is this one maybe because maybe it's a bit of it the nostalgic bug hits me because I saw it when I was younger. But rewatching it, I absolutely love it. And we can't we can't end this conversation without discussing the soundtrack just for a moment mm. because I was a guest on. Uh, the In Session Film Podcast a couple years ago, and we were talking, um, shout out to Brendan and JD, if if you're listening. Guys, i looking forward to being back on the show again sometime, and I definitely want to have you guys on the show. So I was a, a guest on the In Session Film Podcast, and the subject of that show was, we were talking about the movie Sing Street, which if anyone has not seen that movie, it is a delightful film that I strongly, strongly recommend. And one of the great things that the In Session Film Podcast does is they always sort of do a a, a top list related to the movie they're talking about. And this one in particular, that was your top three favorite movie soundtracks of all time. And I listed this at number three. It was, uh, I think the other two I put on was the Dazed and Confused soundtrack and the, of course, the Top Gun soundtrack. I always like to tell people that when I was in high school, I was a huge music aficionado, but I wasn't one that was super into what MTV was playing. I was always seeking out sort of alternative music. And to understand, this is also a time before there was the internet and streaming and all this stuff. And you literally had to go to an FYE or some type of music store and purchase music. It's a weird concept, I know. Uh, but one of the one of the soundtracks that I had re- played religiously in my car was the Lost Boys soundtrack. So you would see me driving into school in my very first car, which was a 1987 Toyota Corolla, blasting "I Still Believe." Ashley, let me ask you about how do you what what are your thoughts on the soundtrack for the Lost Boys and and how do you feel like it's aged over thirty two years? So the weird thing for me, my weird relationship with the Lost Boys soundtrack is there are songs on the Lost Boys soundtrack that are some of my favorite songs from this time period. And then there are some songs that are some of my least favorite songs from this time period. So it's a very, I don't think it's an even, listening to it as an adult, I don't think it's an even soundtrack. I think the mix of music, because you've got your moody music that's supposed to represent the vampire piece, and then you've got your really mainstream music, like their, you know, Walk This Way is on the soundtrack, you know, I mean, you've got this weird mix, but, you know, Good Times by NXS is one of my favorite songs from the 80s. And then Cry, I've already said it before, Cry Little Sister is one of my favorite songs of, of all time. Like I, I listen to that song 
a lot still. And so I I love that. I don't know necessarily that it's aged well. It, it's interesting that we're having this conversation. I got tagged in a post yesterday on Twitter by Gene Lyons of Shat the Movies about the best all-time soundtracks. He was responding to something else. And he tagged me, Carmelita Valdez, uh, Carrie Gross from Shat the Movies, and some other people that I didn't know. And he was talking about how the best soundtrack of all time was The Crow soundtrack. And I think that a soundtrack like The Crow soundtrack, I brought up Natural Born Killers. Carrie Gross brought up The Lost Highway. Somebody else brought up the single soundtrack. You know, I think there are other soundtracks from the 20th century that I think are stronger than this. But at the time, I think it was a really prolific soundtrack. And again, I think it still holds some of the best songs from the time period on it. And I want to point out, for those who don't know, that uh, the song I Still Believe by Tim uh, Capolello is uh, in the movie when they go to the concert on the boardwalk. Uh, the, you know, the, the guy playing the best the, sax scene ever. The best sax scene of all time. He was Tina Turner's saxophonist and he was always with her. He was like all about, like, he was on tour with Tina Turner all the time, but he also did have a bit of a solo career. Some of the worst lip syncing I've ever seen on film. Oh, but it's such a good scene. It's such like, a good I scene. Like, I can't, I actually, Carmelina Valdez posted that on my Twitter feed right before we started recording this was a gif of that scene because I don't know if a more 80s scene has ever been captured on film than that super moody, foggy concert with Jason Patrick and, you know, his character of Michael and Star in that crowd watching that shirtless, swole dude. <laughs> Just play that saxophone. Play the fuck out of that saxophone. I don't know if a more 80s moment has ever been captured. And, and what's great about that is in the background, there's a little billboard behind him. And it just says live. Like It doesn't even have has his name. But there was one little, tiny little scene. I don't scene. think I've ever noticed There's that. one little tiny scene in that film where you've got some guys headbanging. Uh, over a uh, a fire, uh, over a burning fire in, a, in an oil drum. And I'm thinking to myself, no, nobody's headbanging to to this power sax solo. Yeah. But um, They're just getting turned on, Dana. <laughs> but, the, but, but that, um, if if I am asked what is my favorite song from that soundtrack, it's not Cry a Little Sister. It's it's I Still Believe. I just think it's the, it is the, it's a great song. It's a great song. It is. It's a great song. I'm absolutely. You had already mentioned it, which is why I didn't bring that one up too. But I mean, of course, I love that song. I think it's a great song. Um, uh, my my taste in music is it's not very eighties friendly. My taste in music. I, I I posted the other day on my Twitter feed how proud I was. I've never had a prouder parenting moment because they asked my three year old at his preschool what his favorite song was, and everybody had said like "Let It Go" and "Part of Your World," which is awful. And my son said the Cherub Rock by the Smashing Pumpkins, and I literally never been prouder. And so I'm more into a lot of, I like a lot of grunge. I love a lot of goth music. You know, that's more my, that's why the Crow soundtrack is one of my favorite soundtracks. You know, I, that's a little bit more my, my speed. Um, but that being said, I understand the importance of this soundtrack to 80s. I mean, the 80s were such a great soundtrack decade. I mean, they just were in the, in the 90s too. The 80s and the 90s were such good soundtrack decades. And I'm so sorry that we just don't, we don't seem to have that anymore. We, I don't know what's happened to soundtracks, but they just don't seem to be as prolific anymore. And I used to love that. There was nothing better than going and picking up the soundtrack to a movie because you almost feel like you're experiencing the film again. In a way, when you listen to it, I think that they can be such an important extension of what happens on screen and capture those moments and those feelings that that's what we go to the movies for is to feel those things that movies make us feel, whether it's really fucking cool or not. I, mean, I was listening to the Matrix Reloaded soundtrack, which I also think is a really amazing soundtrack. I was listening to that the other day and, you know, listening to that, I was listening to Natural Born Killer soundtrack a couple weeks ago. I mean, when you listen to those soundtracks, you remember the moments in those films and I and that's true of the Lost Boys as well. So, and I just want to point out the soundtrack to Joel Schumacher's previous film Saint Elmo's Fire is also absolutely amazing. In fact, it's an example of a soundtrack that's better than the movie. I'm just going to put that out there. I know I might Ooh, catch a little flack for that. Yeah, 
St. Elmo's Fire is complicated for me because I don't like what they did to Ali Sheedy in that film. Ali Sheedy with pearls and a weird blazer is just not. Ali Sheedy for me is always going to be the Breakfast Club. And I I couldn't watch her or Judd Nelson. I mean, Judd Nelson's such a tool in that movie. I, I'm not a big fan of them. Although Rob Lowe, you want to talk about beauty. Rob Lowe sure. and Demi Moore are just gorgeous. But um, but you know, but Joel Schumacher, you know, we I, I can't let this go to rest. Joel Schumacher, I appreciate his contributions in the 80s, but Joel Schumacher. Schumacher's 90s films not as big of a fan of and we we have discussed them Mike and I discussed um uh, a Time to Kill, which was a Joel Schum- Schumacher mm-hmm. film, and his career kind of went off the rails after that because he did The Client yeah. as well, which is not a that's not a terrible movie. It's it's a you know what I I call The Client. It's a very watchable film. That's, it is. It's it's that TNT movie. Yeah. You know, when you're watching TV on the weekend and you flip to TNT, that's how I rate movies. There's box office movies, so I'm gonna pay to go see it. There's HBO movies. I pay for HBO, so that's a higher caliber. And then there's your TNT and TBS movies that I'm gonna catch on a weekend. You yeah, know, absolutely. So, uh, any closing thoughts on the Lost Boys? Uh, no, I mean, just I just think it's a great movie. I mean, I really do. I'm so glad that we've done this one because I I think that my favorite things about vampire culture that came after 1987 were so influenced by The Lost Boys. And I am grateful to it because I mentioned Buffy at the beginning. You know, We wouldn't have gotten Buffy without The Lost Boys and we wouldn't have gotten pieces of true blood. You know, Charlene Harris was clearly influenced by The Lost Boys. I mean, I, I think a lot of people were influenced by this film and, and I think it's an important movie and I think it's a great movie and it's just fun. I'm glad we did this one because the next one we're going to do is my personal favorite, um, which is not a fun film. It is a dark beautifully dark film and so i'm glad we did a really fun one this absolutely, time. absolutely and i'm really going to just second uh pretty much everything you just said there and the key word is it is a fun movie yeah. and and it's it's enjoyable and it's 96 or 97 minutes long so it's not a super long movie you can get right through it and it's got that great soundtrack and 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 Corey Haim, who you know try to watch the movie haven't watched it in a long time try to watch it with Put yourself back in that time period where this is him really getting introduced. You know, he had been in Silver Bullet. He's the best he's ever going to be in in that movie. And uh, it's it's definitely worth rewatching just for the sake of uh, enjoying how great Corey Haim was. Just like we did with Fright Night, we are going to be rating our films with uh, how many stakes through the heart would you give this film? Ten being the best, zero being the worst. I gave Fright Night eight stakes through the heart, and I have to give The Lost Boys nine stakes through the heart. So, Ashley? I gave Friday Night 7, which I think was fair. I really wish I had given it 6, but I gave it 7, so I'm sticking by it. Um, but I would say for this, and I'm, I would go 9 as well. It's not perfect. Nope. It's not a perfect film, but it's a good film. It's a really good vampire film, and it's important. Those of us who love vampires, it's important. So I would, I would give it 9 stakes through the heart. All right. Now, before we go, we want to give you a heads up about the next film we're going to do. So give you a little time to watch the movie. We'll we'll be doing 1992's Francis Ford Coppola's directed Bram Stoker's Dracula, a movie that I have not seen since I saw it in the theater in 1992. So I have almost no memories of this film. So this is one I'll be rewatching this weekend. So Ashley, looking forward to that one. I am very much looking at this is I spoiler alert. This is my favorite of the ones that we are doing. I love this movie and we'll talk about it more in episode. But Dana, just as a preview, this film caused my mother to go get blessed with holy water okay. at church. So Excellent. that's a fun story. <laughs> Excellent. All right. So if people want to follow you on social media. Absolutely. You can follow me on Twitter at, at Ashley Schlafly. And you can follow the show on Twitter at Dana Buckler Show. You can follow me personally tw- on Twitter at Dana Buckler. You can follow us on Instagram at the Dana Buckler Show. You can email the show with questions or comments. And, and we do like getting these emails, good or bad. We enjoy uh, we enjoy reading them at the Dana Buckler Show at gmail.com. And Ashley, thank you so much for being on this episode. Absolutely. It was a, a lot of fun. I, I'm really enjoying this, Dana. This is this series is going to be a lot of fun. Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. And my name is Dana Buckler, and thank you so much for listening.
Yes, I still believe through the shame. 